This podcast episode contains adult themes and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome to the second episode of The Blood Evidence. I'm your host, Stacy Metzler. The Julia Tutwiler Maximum Security Prison in Wetumpka, Alabama, holds up to 400 inmates and is considered to be one of the worst prisons in America. This prison near Montgomery includes women's death row. There is a separate HIV quarantine area for women who test positive for the disease. One inmate describes the prison enforcing outdated policies from the 1980s AIDS panic. So if you had the disease, you were segregated and treated like a contagious animal. Women are denied education, rehab, and mental treatment programs. Multiple complaints from inmates detail rapes, beatings, and harassments by prison staff. From 2009 to 2011, six Tutwiler employees were indicted on charges of custodial sexual misconduct or custodial sexual abuse. Several prisoners became pregnant after being raped by guards. The inmates who complained were often placed in solitary. Women are scared to take showers or to go to sleep when certain officers are on duty. There are stories that women were forced to shower shoulder to shoulder in the view of the male officer station. Interviews were conducted in 2012 of the living conditions in the prison, and the report states, the women and staff report that Tutwiler is a repressive and intimidating environment. Inmates reported being in fear of retaliation by staff if they reject staff's sexual advances. Additionally, they report that they feel that they cannot bring their complaints to the administration as they will be locked down if they annoy or anger some administrators. According to a Justice Department investigation, more than a third of the employees had had sex with the prisoners, the only currency in some instances for toilet paper and tampons. The conditions are so bad that the federal government says it is likely unconstitutional. Half of the inmates are serving time for nonviolent offenses, property and drug crimes, and is a rate among the highest in the nation. However, one very violent offender is serving life in this prison without the possibility of parole. A neuroscience professor from the University of Alabama in Huntsville, who transferred to Tutwiler from the Metro Jail just 24 hours after her sentencing, after a deadly shooting rampage that left three professors dead and three seriously wounded in February of 2010. February 16th, 2010. Good evening, I'm Terry Moran, and we're going to begin tonight with a shocking crime and the suspect's checkered past. In the four days since police say Professor Amy Bishop opened fire inside a faculty meeting, killing three Alabama colleagues, A string of unsettling episodes has emerged in her past, including a report tonight that in 2002, she was charged with assault after allegedly punching a woman during a restaurant argument. She also... The February 12th shooting rampage that left three professors dead sent shock through the University of Alabama campus. We just started seeing a lot of the SWAT and police just racing down the street. There, the accused killer... Amy Bishop was known as a brilliant, albeit acerbic, professor. But the 45-year-old Harvard-educated mother of four had secrets, dark secrets that are now catching up with her. 
24 years ago, when Bishop was just 21, she shot her brother in the chest with her dad's shotgun. Seth Bishop, a college freshman, died. His sister Amy had killed him. When the shooting happened in 1986, Amy Bishop was cleared. Her mother, the only witness to the incident, claiming it was all a horrible accident. She and Amy said Amy was trying to unload the shotgun when it fired. It was meant to be one of the victims of the shooting at the University of Alabama Huntsville, a college professor who begged Amy Bishop not to do it. Now she's talking for the first time about how she escaped death. She looked angry when I first saw her. You know, somebody who just was mad at you and was going to shoot you. She's talking about the heart-stopping moment when college professor Amy Bishop gunned down six of her colleagues at the University of Alabama in Huntsville, killing three. Biology professor Deborah Moriarty says she would have been killed too, but the mad scientist gun jammed. That's Amy Bishop was born on April 24, 1965. The Bishop family seemed like an ordinary nuclear family. Two parents still married and two kids. They lived in a large Victorian home at 46 Hollis Avenue in Braintree, Massachusetts, a middle-class suburb south of Boston. Samuel was a film professor at Northeastern University. His wife, Judith, was in local politics. Growing up, Amy had bad asthma, her childhood inundated with frequent trips to the emergency room. She and her brother, Seth, exhibited a typical sibling rivalry, and she had a competitive streak. When she started to play the violin in the third grade, Seth decided he wanted to as well. They still were very close. Kathleen, a close friend of Amy's in Braintree, said they both loved music and science and that she enjoyed having someone younger around to collaborate with. The Bishop family was ordinary. Family trips included going to the beach and staying at their grandparents' summer home in New Hampshire. However, even though appearances seemed normal from an external view, they were far from it under the surface and behind closed doors. On December 6, 1986, Seth, at just 18 years old, was a freshman at Northeastern University. Amy, 21, was also at NU as a biology major. On this fateful day, the family suffered an unimaginable tragedy. Amy, prone to violent outbursts and unable to control irrational impulses when emotions were high since a child, had a fight with her father about doing chores. He left the house and Amy went upstairs to his bedroom to collect a 12-gauge shotgun that he kept. Amy's mother and brother were out running errands, but they were to return shortly. Amy, with the gun, waited downstairs. Both Judith, her mother, and Seth returned around the same time and were in the kitchen. They were standing side by side, unloading bags of groceries that Judith had picked up when Amy came through the door holding the shotgun. In the doorway, she said, I have a shell in the gun and I don't know how to unload it. Help me unload this. Seth went to reach for it, at which point Judith said, don't point it at anyone when Amy turned around and it fired. <laughs> Seth was blasted in the chest. Judith immediately called 911 and Amy, running while still holding the gun, ran to their neighbors, Debbie, who was a nurse. Debbie wasn't home, so Amy just started to wander down the street. The police station is less than two miles from the Bishop house, so officers quickly arrived at the scene. Judith met them at the front door, her clothing covered in blood. 
She directed them to the kitchen where Seth lay in a crimson slick on the floor, bleeding to death from the chest wound. A retired Braintree police officer, Timothy Murphy, said that he and some other officers went looking for Amy, finding her at a nearby car dealership, brandishing the firearm and demanding a car. She then stood in front of the officers and pointed the gun at them. They drew their own guns and ordered her to drop the weapon. She lowered it after a very tense minute between she and the police officers. Her father, Samuel Bishop, would later testify that she had never touched the gun before. She was traumatized by a burglary that happened to their home a year prior. The shooting was ruled an accident. Judith testified, her hand was not on the trigger. Her hand was, she had a hand on the barrel part and a hand on the stock. She didn't even have her hand on the trigger. She turned and it just discharged. There were two camps regarding Amy and the shooting of her brother. One, that she had been sitting alone for close to two and a half hours. Her fear of being home alone following the burglary mounting and mounting to where she just reacted on that fear. The second is that she had fully intended to shoot the weapon. There was incriminating evidence against her, one of which that she tried to cover up the holes in the wall that resulted from the shooting. They also found a National Enquirer article in her possession about a similar crime, a teenager using a shotgun to kill the parents of Patrick Duffy, who was an actor in the hit show Dallas. The shooter in the show also tried to get a getaway car, just as Amy did. And there were rumors that she wasn't prosecuted because Judith served on the town committee and had some pull there. And this wouldn't be the last strange incident involving Amy Bishop. After graduating from Northeastern in 1988, she married Jim Anderson, another NU grad in the same small church where Seth's wake was held. They went on to have four children together, and in 1993, Amy earned her doctorate at Harvard and worked in labs at different hospitals in Boston. She spent most of her years working as a postdoctoral fellow in the laboratory of Bruce Dimple, a professor of genetics at Harvard. That same year, she and her husband were suspects in a still unsolved case involving a pipe bomb mailed to Paul A. Rosenberg, an assistant professor in the neurology department at Harvard. She and her husband were investigated, but were ultimately not charged. The motive was speculated that she was worried Rosenberg would criticize her dissertation she submitted in December. The same month the bomb was mailed, Rosenberg was Bishop's supervisor at a children's hospital neurobiology lab. Bishop had allegedly been concerned about receiving a negative evaluation from Rosenberg and reportedly had been in a dispute with Rosenberg. Bishop resigned from her position at the hospital because Rosenberg felt that she, quote, could not meet the standards required for the work. According to documents based upon witness interviews, Bishop was, quote, reportedly upset and, quote, on the verge of a nervous breakdown as a result of this. Anderson reportedly told a witness that she wanted to shoot, stab, or strangle Rosenberg prior to the attempted bombing. Anderson denied that he had ever threatened Rosenberg. Despite these curious incidences that seemed to surround Amy, she had a relatively successful career. She joined the faculty of the Department of Biological Sciences at the University of Alabama in Huntsville as an assistant professor in 2003 and was teaching five courses. 
Dr. Bishop also arrived in Huntsville with a padded resume, given the impression that she had worked at Harvard two years longer than the university records indicate. Bishop and her husband competed in a technology competition and developed a, quote, portable cell incubator, coming in third and winning $25,000. Prodigy Biosystems, where Anderson is employed, raised $1.25 million to develop the, quote, automated cell incubator, although some scientists consulted by the press declared it was unnecessary and too expensive. The invention, called the NQ, is an integrated machine for growing and examining cell cultures in a manner that its developers are touting as wholesale advance over the archaic 133-year-old system of petri dishes. It could drive more scientific research for Alzheimer's and Lou Gehrig's as nerve cells don't live long in petri dishes. But with this invention, they could retain viability longer, making them more useful in studying them. Her work involved studying mechanisms that led to the degeneration of neural tissues. Most of her published papers concerned nitric oxide, a molecule that cells use to communicate with other cells. At high levels, nitric oxide is toxic and is believed to play a role in neurodegenerative disease like ALS and multiple sclerosis. Colleagues and students described her as smart and a good technical person, but her ability to run a lab was always in question. At first, colleagues and students said, she came across as funny and extroverted, enthusiastic and knowledgeable about campus issues. She became the biology department's representative to the faculty senate, not necessarily a coveted job, but one that she seemed to enjoy. She was known to have cyclical, quote, flip outs, that would cause graduate students to drop out of her lab. Once, when a paper she wrote was published, it was reported that she flew into a rage because she wasn't listed as the first author. She was slow to publish, only publishing a paper in the years 2004, 2005, and 2006. She didn't have any publications in 2007 and 2008. Other neuroscientists were publishing much more frequently and quicker in the same subject. With a thin publication record, her personality continued to concern staff. In meetings, she would go on bizarre rambles not related to anything on the agenda. She often seemed, quote, crazed and, quote, out of touch with reality. To me, it sounds like a lot of untreated bipolar one. Bishop's husband depicts his wife as normal, if not a bit harried, like a typical mother of four would be. She was the stage mom for their young son's most recent school play, where she helped with costumes and makeup and keeping up with all the male actors. All four of her children were musicians and scientists, just like she and her brother were. Quote, I taught them to do tissue cultures by the time they were 10, James Anderson said. There's a constant ferrying of them to their various music lessons and performances. And Amy was very involved in their children's lives, her husband would later say. But following the Huntsville shooting, more and more disturbing details about her behavior were exposed. For instance, in 2002, she assaulted a woman in an IHOP restaurant over a booster seat. According to a Boston Globe report, in March of 2002, Bishop walked into an International House of Pancakes restaurant in Peabody with her family, asking for a booster seat for one of her children, and learned the last seat had gone to another customer, according to a police report. Amy strode to the customer, identified in the report as Michelle, demanded the seat, and after a profanity-laced rant, punched her in the head while yelling, I am Dr. Bishop. 
Bishop did not plead guilty according to court documents, but admitted there was enough evidence to prosecute her. In exchange, she received probation. Court records are unclear whether a judge granted the prosecutor's recommendation that she take anger management classes. Amy was also involved in a writing group. A friend of hers, or an acquaintance perhaps, from the group in Massachusetts said Amy had drafted three unpublished novels, one of which featured a female scientist working to defeat a potential pandemic virus and struggling with suicidal thoughts at the threat of not earning tenure. People in the writing group said she would frequently mention her Harvard degree to earn more credibility as a serious writer, and though she was smart, she was abrasive in her interactions and felt, quote, entitled to praise. In 2009, she was denied tenure at UAH because her research and publication record were not strong. This was unusual as most tenure-track professors were often guaranteed tenure due to consistent and regularly scheduled interventions on progress and how better to improve. A member of Amy's tenure review committee described her as, quote, crazy, and upon finding this out, Amy filed a complaint with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission alleging gender discrimination that was unfairly used against her. The professor did not retract his comments. The professor was given the opportunity to back off the claim or to say it was a flippant remark, but he didn't. He said, I said she was crazy multiple times and I stand by that. This woman has a pattern of erratic behavior. She did things that weren't normal. She was out of touch with reality. That same year, students say they complained to administrators about Amy on at least three occasions, saying she was, quote, ineffective in the classroom and had odd, unsettling ways. A petition was signed by, quote, dozens of students, which was then sent to the department head. The complaints, however, did not result in any classroom changes. Because her tenure was denied, she was expected not to have her teaching contract renewed after March of 2010. She appealed the decision despite faculty members encouraging her to find another job, and the appeal was denied. At this time, financially struggling with no support from her colleagues at the university, she started frequenting the firing range. The day of the shooting, Amy taught her anatomy and neuroscience class. She was acting normal during the lecture. On the third floor of the Shelby Center for Science and Technology at UAH in room 349 on February 12th, 2010, People were seated around a conference table for a faculty meeting, about 13. It was a typical routine meeting with class enrollments and who was going to teach what discussions on the agenda. Nobody mentioned Amy's teaching contract expiration, which was fast approaching the following month. Amy sat in silence during the meeting for 30 to 40 minutes. Dressed in a rose-colored shirt and jeans, she was sitting near the door next to Gopi Padilla, the department's chairman. Around 4 p.m., she stood up and removed Ruger 9mm handgun from her purse. She fired first at Mr. Padilla, shooting him in the chest, killing him instantly. Sadly, Gopi Padilla was one of the very few who supported her bid for tenure. She pointed the gun at each professor, one by one, shooting at them execution style in the head. Upon hearing the first shot, the three professors sitting at the other end of the oval table dropped to the floor. The professors Adriel D. Johnson Sr. and Maria Raglan Davis were shot in the head and killed. Three others were severely injured. One woman came out phys physically unscathed, 
but horrified, she would later report. Professor of Biochemistry Deborah Moriarty, a friend to Amy, looked up from her papers when she heard the first blast. It was deafening. She immediately dove under the table. What she did next has been described by the university's president as heroic and may have saved the lives of the others in the room. Quote, I was thinking, oh my God, this has to stop, Deborah said. She crawled beneath the table toward her who was blocking the doorway. She grabbed at her legs and pleaded for her to stop. Amy stepped away from her grasp. Still on the floor, Deborah managed to crawl partially out into the hallway. Amy was shooting the entire time and then turned her attention to Deborah, placing two hands on the gun and pointing it at her. Deborah cried, Amy, think about my grandson, think about my daughter. Her expression was angry, quote, intense eyes, a set jaw, end quote, she recalled vividly. Amy pulled the trigger twice, click, click. She ran out of bullets. Deborah managed to get back into the room. At the same time, Amy was in the hallway rummaging through her purse, probably to reload. Deborah took advantage of this short distraction and the others in the room then helped her push the table against the door to block her out. They called 911 and used napkins and a shirt to stop the bleeding of the wounded. The murder weapon was found in a bathroom on the second floor of the building. Bishop did not have a permit to carry a concealed weapon as required by state law. She used a cell phone to call her husband to come pick her up. She was arrested a few minutes later outside the building. Shortly after her arrest, Amy was quoted as saying, it didn't happen, there's no way. When asked about the deaths of her colleagues, Amy replied, there's no way, they're still alive. Of the three wounded, Dr. Joseph Leahy, Stephanie Monticello, a staff assistant, were critically wounded. They survived following a hospital stay. Dr. Luis Cruz Vera was rushed to the hospital with a gunshot wound to the chest, but was released the day after the shooting. A memorial service was held at University of Alabama in Huntsville on Friday, February 19, 2010, with 3,000 people in attendance. Shortly after Bishop's arrest, people at the university's biology department expressed concern to police that she had, quote, booby-trapped the science building with a herpes bomb intended to spread the virus. She had previously worked with the herpes virus while completing her postdoctoral studies, and a novel she wrote described the spread of a virus similar to herpes throughout the world, quote, causing pregnant women to miscarry. That was the writing I described earlier in her writing group, her three unpublished novels. However, the police had already searched the premises, finding only the handgun used in the shooting. Amy was charged with one count of capital murder and three counts of attempted murder. The police confiscated a large binder containing documents pertaining to her, quote, tenure battle, her computer, and the family van. She secured an unnamed attorney and was held at the Madison County, Alabama jail without bail. Her court-appointed attorney was Roy W. Miller. Amy was eligible for either the death penalty or life in prison, according to Alabama law. On February 15th, during a closed-door hearing presided over by an Alabama judge, the charges were read to Amy. Following the hearing, Amy was on suicide watch, a standard procedure in such cases. Her husband said she called him prior to her arraignment and they spoke for approximately only two minutes and said, 
she seems to be doing okay. On March 12th, while executing a search warrant on Bishop's residence, the police discovered a suspicious device prompting an evacuation of the nearby neighborhood and later identified by the bomb squad as non-explosive. Her lawyer visited her in jail and said she does not remember the shooting at all. Initially, he said Amy had severe mental health issues that appeared to be paranoid schizophrenia, later retracted that statement saying, quote, he had spoken out of turn. He acknowledged Amy's role in the attack saying, this is not a whodunit. This lady has committed this offense or offenses in front of the world. It gets to be a question in my mind of her mental capacity at the time or her mental state at the time that these acts were committed. She was sorry for what she had done and they needed psychiatrists to evaluate her mental condition, especially at the time of the shooting. The 1986 shooting of her brother was also reopened to be reinvestigated as to her real involvement. She was indicted for the murder of her brother. Two days later, she attempted suicide in the Huntsville jail. She survived and was treated at a hospital and then returned to jail. Though they now had probable cause that Amy willingly shot her brother, the case was dropped due to the expiration of the statute of limitations. She pleaded guilty on September 12, 2012 to avoid getting the death penalty. On September 24th, she was sentenced to a life in prison without the possibility of parole. In October of 2015, Amy apologized for the first time for what she had done. In a handwritten note, she writes that it was a terrible thing that she had done, and she was terribly sorry to the victims, their families, and her own family. She also argues that her lawyers and her trial were inadequate into looking at her mental health issues. She blames schizophrenia, allergies, and steroids for the condition that she was in that led to the crime. Joseph Leahy, the microbiology professor who was shot in the head, rejected Amy's apology, saying that she was only apologizing to get out of prison and not that she was truly regretful for what she had done. That's it for the second episode of The Blood Evidence. Join me next Wednesday for the murder of Diane Fossey, a primatologist and conservationist found brutally murdered in her cabin in Rwanda. Until then, lock your doors and stay safe. Mm-hmm.